And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. So nice to hear from you again. <laughs> I know, it's been ages. Wow. Okay. So let's see. We've got part four going down. Oh my gosh, you wrote a lovely summary. Why don't you uh why don't you give us your summary? All right. So this part is the grand lead up to Beatrice's grand reveal as the Egyptian symbol to the public. So she experiences a lot of nerves as she prepares. Adelaide is really struggling with her feelings about Brody and Beatrice. And Eleanor gets an unexpected surprise as she's summoned to Lucy's house. But ultimately, all of this is thrown aside. The confusing kidnapping of Beatrice right before she's set to go on stage. Oh, no! Dun, Poor dun, Beatrice. Alright, so while reading this section, um, and it's been a couple of weeks, so I apologize, one of the things I picked up was the theme of courage. Were there any themes that made sense to you, or was that something you picked up on too? For me, I think courage was like, courage and the idea of strength were like the overriding theme of this part, which I think is partially because like Beatrice is about to like face adversity for the first time in the next part, like real, real adversity. So like part of it is foreshadowing, right? Leading up, what does it mean to be a strong person? What does it mean to be a courageous person? But I think also it's just one of those themes that was kind of, you know, we've skittered around it in previous episodes, but like this is the part where it becomes the most important thing that's happening. Yeah, and Amy McKay even leads us a little foreshadowing at the beginning of this section where Beatrice is given a doll and uh, she it's like a little toy doll and she spins it and it gives her a fortune and the fortune is courage always. Without it, there is no hope. Yeah. So, yeah, that's cool. I had a couple of questions written out about courage and we talked, you just touched a little bit on it. So what does it mean to be a courageous person? Yes, but also a courageous femme-identifying person. Like, do we identify that differently than we identify uh, traditionally masculine courage? I think that the book has a couple of different answers to that. So I think that courage for women and femme-identifying people in this book is very much equated to, like, emotional strength. And the power of being able to be vulnerable and things like that. On page 359, there's a quote where Eleanor is talking to Beatrice about Adelaide. And she says, Adelaide isn't strong because she's confident. She's strong because she is always afraid. So, like, there's there's vulnerability being talked about there. There's also the idea of being able to turn fear into a positive thing for yourself and almost use it like an armor. So I think that that's one way the book talks about it. I think the second way the book talks about it is what we're actually kind of supposed to take away from this, which is something that we've talked about, I feel like, ad nauseum at this point, is the idea of the quote, like, we're better off together than we are apart. That comes Mm -hmm. up, that quote directly comes up right after that quote about being strong and feeling courageous on page, like, 359, 360. So I think that that's the other thing is that courage has to do with being able to lean on the communities that you have around you and that facing adversity, you're stronger together than you are as like a single human being. And I think that's something that the book isn't necessarily saying as kind of a third answer to this question, but I think you could potentially read into at this time is that it does kind of mean something a little bit different as a male or a male identifying person. And I don't think I can say that like with This is something the book is definitely playing on. But the idea of courage comes up so much in this section. And it also comes up in a later encounter with Mr. Newland, who we'll get into later. But in one of his big quotes, he says that he but he's talking about the fact that like he's he's equating courage as being a male thing, but also equating to drinking or interestingly enough. 
which I think is more meant to say that like courage is for men wrought from different ways okay so he says we drink to celebrate we drink to gain courage we drink to the beauty good nature and fidelity of our wives which is a quote we'll come back to when we talk more about what happens to Eleanor when she goes to see Lucy but I thought that was really interesting that he so directly mentions courage in a section that is all about courage so I think that that's kind of my three answers to how the book answers those questions interesting yeah okay Yeah, I think that you're right. I think that the book is definitely, I don't know if the book is saying this, but I myself have been taught to view courage as being kind of like the Gryffindor Harry Potter thing where you are brave. Although Harry Potter doesn't exactly do this, but like we see courage as the hero's mode, right? And heroes often in popular media solve things with their fists (laughs) and with this very direct physical action. Yeah. And here we're seeing a lot the the strength, as Eleanor is saying, the strength of being vulnerable and the strength of community. And as you were just talking about, the strength of solidarity, right? We are, when we're together, we, like, that's the most dangerous thing to oppressive forces, right? It's solidarity. It's standing up with one another. So, yeah, I guess the book isn't directly saying that there are two types of courage that fits into gender binaries, but I definitely think that it is promoting a more, or I guess a less toxically masculine courage, or maybe not even toxic, but just a less, a less traditionally masculine courage, or what we're associating with masculinity. I think at the very least, the books is heavily suggesting the idea that courage has multiple modes and multiple meanings for different people, you know, like courage can be multiple different things to multiple different people it's just that like these two modes of of courage tend to fit with characters like Eleanor and Adelaide and Beatrice yeah that makes sense and they are living and they're living in a pretty oppressive time for females they're living in the 1800s and this book deals a lot with sexism that is kind of directly being perpetuated at this time in a way that it might not as directly be perpetuated now and so they are they are dealing with an oppressive force that they have to overcome although we get we get that too we 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 get the double whammy here (laughs) yes that is true it's a it's a good fantasy novel it has all the all the key notes (laughs) yeah it it has everything you could want in it okay so another thing that i wanted to talk about oh or i guess that you wanted to talk about why don't you talk about this page 364 so I think that going off the idea of foreshadowing there on page 364, we see one of the most blatant elements of foreshadowing in the book. So two characters named Mr. White and Mr. Black, who aren't ever mentioned again in the book. They're like, their scene is literally here to say this one line, but they are at uh, the Statue of Liberty, which is where most of the scenes, like 75% of the scenes in this section take place right before the Egyptian Sybil, because that's where the Cleopatra's Needle is about to go up. So there's like all kinds of protests and people who are for that and people who are against that. And we see the anti-suffragettes. Mr. White and Mr. Black are in the park because they want nothing to do with this. It's because they play chess there every single every single Sunday and they weren't going to let a bunch of gosh darn people stop them from doing what they're doing. But at the very end of their section, they say the quote, People like the feeling they get when they think they've stumbled upon something miraculous. And in context in the scene, it's because they're talking about how it's kind of unseasonably warm in October. But in actuality, they have this conversation every single year. And like, it's not actually unseasonably warm. It's just warm in October. So they're talking about how ridiculous it is that people say something like that. And it's because, you know, people like the feeling they get when they think they've stumbled upon something miraculous or different or unique. Which I think just really sums up a lot of what this book is about to a certain extent. But I think it's also just kind of like one of the lovely parts of being human also to a certain extent. You know, like the idea that stumbling on something miraculous can be such a good thing. You know, like it feels good to feel like you're noticing something new about the world. That's very true. That's that's really interesting. I didn't pick up on that. As much as you did. And now that you're saying that, that makes me think, I I mean, it's interesting because 
right after that, we get the section in which Adelaide does meet the the suffragettes or the anti-suffragettes. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, she meets the anti-suffragettes. And they're one of the women that she meets is uh, Sister Pitoff. And yeah, she, but she doesn't you know, know that. Yeah, she doesn't know that. But we know that Sister Pitoff is an anti-suffragette probably because of religion. Mm-hmm. And she has all of this, like, this false idea. I would say false idea of what it means to be spiritual. And it's also interesting because this book is about witchcraft. And as somebody who is personally interested in that and practicing it, a lot of the reason why I personally am doing it is so that I can stumble upon things that seem miraculous to me, right? For that sense of awe. So that's just kind of like a running theme of spirituality. Um, I think also as like a reader, I really connected with that because I think it's part of the reason that people like magic and and fantasy books and things like that as well is like this idea that you're you've stumbled across something that is just so different than what you're actually seeing in your everyday life, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. It's the way it's written in the book to me seems as though it's kind of like poo pooing over that, but. I think that you're right to think that it has double meaning because the book is a fantasy novel and it's a fantasy novel about witchcraft. I agree too. I think there's also something to say about the idea because like it's talking about it in relation to the weather, right? So like I think there's also something to say about the fact that like not everything is miraculous or is different or is out of the ordinary. And I think it's like it takes a discerning eye to understand, you know, like what is and what isn't. Does it matter if something isn't miraculous and you think it is? Like, I it, mean, is it is it okay to think that? Or, I don't know, is the book, does the book have any words of warning for that? Or is it? I think the one thing I could say is that, like, everything we know about science wouldn't have come about if we just accepted everything as miraculous, right? So, like, everything, a lot of the facts, quote unquote, we know about the word, world wouldn't have come about if we just kind of accepted that everything's miraculous but i don't know that the book has many other words of wisdom besides this one passage it's more that i just like i read this quote and i was like i think that for me this sums up a lot of what's happening here repent dear sister and change your sinful ways She's trying to bring her into a different kind of sisterhood, right? One that Sister Piddock feels is the right one and the correct one. And I just found that line to be really, really just very interesting, you know? Like, yes, she's there being kind of a a negative Nelly, so to speak, like, but she's also vehemently trying to save people, even if her version of saving is probably, you know, isn't correct necessarily. This is the only part or one of the very, like, few pages that Sister Piddock is in this scene. And for me, I thought it was really interesting because sometimes you forget reading this book because we see Sister Piddock's point of view all the time, right? Like, we know her. We are not surprised that she is here handing out literature that is titled Votes for Women Against God's Order. It was really interesting to me about the idea that Adelaide recognizes her but doesn't know her, right? We are so ingrained in Sister Piddock's kind of ideology and her thought process at this point, but, like, the characters in the book don't actually, haven't to this point at the very least, actually interacted with each other that much. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So it makes her a little bit less evil, I guess. In our yeah, it, for me at least it does. I just thought it was really interesting that she wasn't sitting there being like, anyone who believes in this is terrible. Like, she's trying in her own misguided way to do something good to bring people into a sisterhood almost yeah to bring them into the way of god which is what she believes is the one true her version of it do you think what what do you think the book is trying to do by giving us so much of these different perspectives that the characters themselves and the plot themselves like it doesn't actually mean what do we get by seeing so much of Sister Piddock's perspective that Adelaide just doesn't see? Why um, not just give us Adelaide's perspective the entire time? Well, I mean, I think that part of it is like, as we've talked about before, I think that we are supposed to feel empathy for Sister Piddock specifically. I think, frankly, her perspective 
also lends more credence to the reverence perspective um Mm. and also nuance to the reverence perspective because when sister piddock kind of finds out more about what the reverence up to as in you know like kidnapping and torturing girls like (laughs) she we see a place where like this ideology diverges between the two of them for the first time which I think is an important thing for Sister Piddock's character. But I, I think that's, I think that's, it's both to like offer just a different perspective so that we're seeing a more rounded sort of understanding of what the historical world was like at this time. But I think it's also partially to like, it adds to sort of the sinister nature of the book and then at a ideology, ideal can't speak at a very critical time in the ideology of the book it breaks away and all of a sudden we see something different happening yeah i agree so yeah i guess it's important because it gives us it gives us an almost a more it gives us a better it gives us a wholer perspective of because we're not just giving sister piddock as someone who's purely evil yeah i think for us the reverend does come across as purely evil a lot so if not entirely yeah (laughs) Well, I think, yeah, for me, I just thought that he he had some problems. Somebody who is very, really sick, right? Yeah, I think that the thing about the like reverend he's... that saves him from being wholly evil is that there are slight moments and slight glimmers where you see the places in which, like, society and his circumstances have raised him to believe this one specific thing, and now it is just having horrible consequences. Yes. He's definitely taking way too much pleasure out of it. And it would bother me if we didn't get any of the villain's perspective, I think, or at least any, like, attempting to sympathize with the villain, because I just don't think that's how the world works. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I've read, like, a handful of novels. I can't even think of one off the top of my head where, like, I the antagonist was supposed to just be, like, 100% truly evil and, like, did that successfully. I think you're totally right, like... <laughs> There needs to be something for you to grip onto that person as actually being a person. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I highlighted Adelaide's jealousy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because we had talked about it earlier and you were like, oh, I didn't see Adelaide as jealous. Because I just thought it was really interesting how she kind of turns on Beatrice. Oh, yeah. Maybe because Beatrice is, yeah. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? That competitiveness with Beatrice all of a sudden? Because it does happen very suddenly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I would say that, like, while I didn't see Adelaide's jealousy as much in the earlier episode we talked about it, I think in this chapter it is, it's not just clear, it's explicit, right? Like, she's petty and jealous and, like, feels weird feelings about Beatrice in relationship to Brody because she feels, she feels like the third wheel in that, like, Brody and Beatrice are suddenly going to be a thing and then Adelaide, because of this business partnership, and then Adelaide's just going to be, like, tossed to the side, But at the same time, I kind of felt that to be, like, while irrational, kind of totally relatable. Like, like, I'm not going to lie. There were parts of that where I was reading it and it was like, Adelaide, like, I don't appreciate you for thinking like this. But, like, you know, there's definitely been points in my life where I've thought like that and also didn't appreciate me for thinking like that. So, yeah, I mean, it is something that happens, but it's also, I don't know, I think. I feel that a lot, probably. I'm a, but I always feel, like, extreme guilt for feeling it almost simultaneously while I'm feeling it. And I guess, yeah, I don't know. It just seems to me, it, it's, like, it seems very patriarchal that she's just going to assume that, like, the one other girl in the room going to get this attention of this man. Like, she suddenly turns into somebody very much affected by the patriarchy. She Like, she's fighting yeah i do you think though that that could have something to do with like her deep-seated insecurities about the way she looks though like which we've talked about oh, yes before i feel like it i feel like that <laughs> aspect of it i don't want to say separates it slightly from the patriarchy but i do think it adds an important nuance to like what's happening here right because like i think a lot of the time in societies you know then and now there's like this really big stigma against people who have visible disabilities and like there's a lot of ableism involved even in the way we talk about like interable couples and things like that so like i think it's i think it's like patriarchy plus thoughts about what it means to like have uh like a a physical mark on especially on your face as a woman you know 
Yeah, I agree. I think it definitely adds nuance, but I think it's, like, extra patriarchal. And I think I'm pointing it out, yes, in part, because I was being petty, but also because I feel like often women feel that sort of competitiveness with each other. And I know I definitely have. I, Mm -hmm. I feel a lot of envy towards other women, especially not necessarily always a man, but women, or I felt irrational jealousy when a a girl flirts with uh, the guy I'm with or something like that. And it's just, I don't know, it's just so unnecessary, but it is something that occurs and happens. And I guess the discomfort with that is just something that I want to talk about because I'm really uncomfortable with that, but it does happen. Yeah, I think I think the part for me that was slightly unrelatable about that part was that I, for me, like you, I also feel guilty when I have those thoughts. And like, I always, I feel like I always end up making a point to be like, okay, self, like you feel like this, but you're probably being irrational. Like we need to calm down and especially stop blaming like the other woman in this situation. Um, Adelie doesn't quite have that. <laughs> realize. Like she doesn't, she doesn't quite get there. But Adelaide's also, like, in the 1800s, and feminism in this book, in this book's timeline, is just kind of, like, really blooming, and it's not, it's not mainstream at all. I and you and I, I think, trying to be more conscientious. And I think also the fact, the point that you made before about the fact that, like, it kind of, com- like, these specific thoughts she's having about Beatrice come on very fast. But they also don't end up staying for very long because, like, one of the no. next scenes we see Adelaide and Brody in is when they finally admit that they have feelings for each other. So, like, there isn't really even that moment for self-reflection given to Adelaide in the book. How do you feel about that trope that, like, they don't admit that they have feelings for each other until Adelaide's like, I'm jealous! Ah! That is something that's happened to me in real life, but I, um, I don't know, do you have annoyance with that trope? Where, like, I don't admit my feelings for someone until I'm like, oh, I'm jealous of this other person. (laughs) I don't feel... It's not my favorite by any means. It's not my, like, least favorite either. I just feel kind of meh about it. But, you know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, I feel pretty meh about their entire relationship anyways, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I guess maybe it's, like... I don't know. Maybe it's not the best writing, or I don't know. Sometimes that trope bothers me. But I don't know if that's just because I'm reading it, like, too realistically, and I don't think that's the best way to start a relationship. <laughs> but I do think that there's something to say that about the fact that, like, they end up talking through the misunderstanding of it, you know? They don't... I think that part of the trope that really... of this trope in other books that really bothers me is when they just, like, stew in their miscommunication, right? Like, because in the pages before they get together, they're, like, arguing, arguing, you know? And then, like, Adelaide tries to walk away in a frenzy. And I think a lot of other books would have let that happen and let them both be, like, confused and depressed and, like, later the come-together happens. But, like, he addresses it in that moment. And he goes, actually, no. You need to know that for Rents, you've gotten things terribly wrong. What I wanted to say, what I meant to tell you all along, is that there's one thing I can't do without, and that one thing is you, Adelaide Tom. So, like, I think that there is some moment of redemption there where, like, the miscommunication and the jealous feelings are actually dealt with in the conversation that they're brought up in. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so it is dealt with well. All right. Not to say that, um, like, I still, not to say that I like it necessarily, but I do think it's done better than other places I've seen it in this book. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And I guess I, I do like that the jealousy is incredibly fleeting and that she realizes that she was being irrational, which is fine because we all get irrational sometimes. And it's not just a woman thing. I just want to point out. Yeah. I feel like that could. <laughs> for sure. And I think it's also important to note that, like, Adelaide doesn't take things out badly on Beatrice like the most that the jealousy potentially comes across to her in this part at least is that Adelaide is like stressed and a little bit short with her when she's talking to her backstage but like that's it you know like Adelaide doesn't start suddenly mistreating Beatrice or anything because of these feelings that's a good point and I think that's a really yeah that's a good point because it's okay to have feelings because we all have them it's not okay to take your feelings out on someone that's when it crosses the line yeah absolutely i have unshared both thoughts all the time and i have taken them out on people and that's not cool yeah (laughs) 
another thing I wanted to talk about, I think just because I was confused, I don't know, I just thought it was interesting that Adelaide's, Adelaide's mom ends up warning or trying to warn Adelaide about the witch hunter. And I have a few, a few points that raised for me during that. Number one was that she um, is recognizing that Adelaide is a witch, and I thought that was interesting. And I also think it's interesting that she just recognizes that there is a witch hunter near, like, that she knows, and yeah, that's it. I just, how does, how does she know? She's been lost in graveyard land for forever. Yeah, I also thought that that was, um, it was interesting that she comes back on page 369, and it literally says that she is pulled forth by Adelaide's thoughts, um, and that she's been confused, because she's, she saw kind of like the mini Adelaide we talked about last part or the part before she sees her adult daughter she forgets what happens to her adult daughter so like she's like really in a confused place but like Adelaide is very much like the real adult in this moment Adelaide is very much her anchor in a lot of ways and in every way really and I think the other thing that this kind of paragraph really struck for me is the question of whether Oh my god, I forget their names every time. The little dream fairies. But I think Twitch and Bright. Yeah, Twitch and Bright. I think it calls into question whether they actually potentially did the right thing by expelling her from the tea house. Because like what could have like what could have happened potentially if she was able to get that warning earlier, you know? Like I think it was definitely uncool of them, and I think that they're very disrespectful to the ghost. And I don't know if it's because her mom wasn't like a super great person in life or if it's just like they don't respect the dead as much or what it is but their treatment of her mom is not nice i think they i i remember them saying that it was partially because her mother played that trick on beatrice and like that whole ceremony was supposed to be about beatrice so they were worried that she was going to try and like sabotage it somehow um Mm. But I, I agree. I, I think that, like, there's this level where it's, like, mm, you know, if she hadn't been just, like, cast off into, like, wherever dark place she was the entire time, like, could we have gotten warnings earlier and everything? Especially because there's, like, a inference at on page 375 that, like, Adelaide's mother actually possesses the bird lady for a second. Mm-hmm. He's here, she's saying. He's here. He means to catch a witch. Which is the first time we've ever seen Beatrice's mother think something so strongly that she could be considered to actually be communicated or not Beatrice's mother, Adelaide's mother thinks something so strongly that like she could actually potentially be communicating with Adelaide, you know? Yes. Yeah. So she like, she does finally get to communicate with Adelaide, but Adelaide still doesn't notice that she doesn't understand the warning. No, she doesn't, which is like understandable, but it just, it just makes you think like, could things have gone differently and would and if they did would they have gone differently in a positive way or like would bright and twitch actually have been correct and like adelaide's mother would have messed with the madame st Clair ceremony like we'll never know but i i appreciate the fact that the scene for me really calls into question that aspect of it you know because to me it feels and i don't know if this is too much of a stretch it has been a week or so a few weeks since i read this section but to me it feels like almost a little bit classic but I don't know, like, there's, like, some weird, they just, they're not nice to the mom. And I get that she played that trick, but, like, what would have happened if they had tried being nice first? Yeah, and and I think that there's also, like, the idea of coming, I think there's something interesting about the idea that, like, it's potential that these magical creatures, even Purdue, like, isn't necessarily right all the time. Like, it is possible for them to make poor, wrong decisions, potentially for reasons that are just, like, mean and petty, like you're talking about. Like, it could be from a classist standpoint. Yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. I also, uh, I wanted to ask you, if Adelaide, do you think Adelaide would have gotten the message if she was taking, like, her witchiness more seriously if she was like embracing that more and because I feel like if that message had gotten to Eleanor she would have known what to do and obviously Adelaide can't be as expected to be as in tune with her witchiness as Eleanor because Eleanor's literally been training for it her whole life but like if Adelaide weren't so stubborn about her lack of specialness I think she would have been able to like recognize that sign Maybe, but I also think that ultimately it would be difficult. I think it's still kind of difficult, right? Because 
I do get what you mean. I think that there, I think that there's something to that idea. I think it's just also like, I, I would have a hard time envisioning the plot, frankly, <laughs> if that was true, you know? That makes sense. I apparently wanted to talk about Joan of Arc, but I don't remember why. I think it was just interesting, I guess, that she appears. Uh, but yeah, I guess I think it was just interesting that the the suffragette dressed up as Joan of Arc. I wondered if there was anything special and symbolic there other than, you know, Joan of Arc is a icon, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I really, oh, I don't know. She does talk with God. I wonder if that's, and she okay, was called not- a witch. I can't remember what the page is on, but Joan of Arc talks with God and is called a witch. So that could be a connection. It's right before Eleanor gets kidnapped. She sees Joan of Arc. Right before Eleanor gets kidnapped? No, Beatrice. I'm sorry, Beatrice. I'm okay. sorry. It's like almost nine here. I'm I'm a pumpkin. It's <laughs> all good. It's all good. Do you want to talk about the street harassment? Yeah. I just thought it was interesting that Hasham grabbed Beatrice because I feel like I feel like it relates a lot to today and how men treat people today. Like not mm-hmm. much has changed. And this is right before Adelaide comes in and saves her because she's meeting Beatrice. Well, it's I oh. think I think, I think it's Pasham. No, it's something that interesting that happens here is that Beatrice is talking to Pasham. Reverend Townsend saves her from Pasham, and then Be- Adelaide saves her from the reverend reverend Towson. yes you're and right that's you're right how, and that's how the reverend even figures out that like beatrice should be hit her, his next target yes that's 374 by the way friends mm-hmm. so yeah three so, 374 375 yeah 374 375 yeah so like she's being harassed by this man on the street and reverend Townsend gets to come in there and play like white knight mm-hmm. and I thought that was interesting because he's being positioned very much as like this good guy, but he's not really a good guy. And it just reminded me of all the men in the world who pretend to be good, but do so in this awful misogynistic manner. I feel like that happens to me all the time where men will come in and be like, oh, a few months ago, I was walking with my boyfriend, by the way, and I was wearing a dress that I wore in a bunch and it's not particularly short, but it's kind of short. And the man a man drove by and started shouting at us from his car and I was confused so like I turned to see what he was saying and he wasn't shouting at me he was shouting at my boyfriend and talking about how I needed to pull my skirt down and I was like okay (laughs) I eventually like I responded because my boyfriend did not understand what was happening and he wasn't talking to me but I responded because about me and the man was like you're welcome which is the most ridiculous thing ever like okay maybe you got to see my ass good for you (laughs) you should feel lucky i don't want random men shouting at me and also like i don't feel like my skirt was too short i was completely fine with it and um it's more uncomfortable that you're shouting at me or at my boyfriend not even at me because you're uncomfortable with the way that i look anyway that is to say that men all the time are trying to be good or pretending like they're trying to be good and they're doing it in the most, like, blah way. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of, like, fake allies out there, essentially, who, like, are able to kind of take the idea of stepping in in a place where you think something's happening wrong and just turn it into something gross. Yeah, I was asking you what you thought about all of that. The Pasham and the Beatrice and the nice guy and the white knight stuff. I think that there are a lot of in like contemporary times kind of like fake allies out there who like are who take the tactic of you know being a man or male identifying person who like stands up for a woman in a situation and then like just like turns it into something gross you know like it ends up continuing the harassment and i think that you really see that pattern in this scene with reverend but i was just gonna say like i totally agree with your reading on on what happens in that situation and i think it's something that is very relatable and identifiable with Especially because Beatrice doesn't know what to do. I have never, ever really known what to do in situations where I get harassed on the street. I think I've had, like, one good response once. For the most part, I act like she does, and I kind of better, and I stumble until I just extricate myself, you know? Yes, I do. That makes a lot of sense. I think that when you're being harassed, it's because you're receiving something that is scary, it's normal to freeze up. And I also think that part of it is too that 
you are scared and you don't know if retaliation is an okay or a smart thing to do. Because I have friends who will like tell people to fuck off and stuff. And I'm so proud of them and good for them. But it does scare me. And I've only ever done that when I'm with a group of people. I've only felt bold enough to do that when I'm with a group of people. Yeah. But when I'm by myself, that scares me. (laughs) There's just like, yeah, no, I totally, I'm with you. I'm totally with you on that whole thing. I don't know that there's a ton else to say about it, though, like in in the book. I agree. Do you want to move on to Mr. Newland? Yes, Mr. Newland. My gosh, you mentioned earlier the courage being mentioned again, right? (sighs) Yeah. I had... I mean, Mr. Newland is such a shitty person for a lot of reasons, but he does kind of at one point talk about Beatrice wishing she were a man simply because she's, you know, in love with... uh, I'm sorry. Yes. Eleanor. Sorry. Pumpkin land. Mm -hmm. Correct. No worries. Um, (laughs) Yeah, she does. he, He does talk about Eleanor wishing that she were a man because she's in love with his wife, essentially. And that was interesting to me because I feel like it plays a lot into the butch stereotype. And Mm -hmm. I'm only bringing it up because I've talked with some of my lesbian friends about it. And they, like, or I guess just they talk to me about their experiences. And it, it rings true to my experiences, too, a little bit, where, like, we feel, as they feel weird being to like presenting as too masculine right and that's like a big thing when when you are uh, because lesbianism is so associated with being masculine and therefore like being wrong in some way because Mm -hmm. you're not identifying traditionally with the sex that you're born with even though that's not what it means to be homosexual (laughs) you know there's like a whole wide array that they feel like that when they're acting on 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 like flirting with girls, they feel a weird sense of masculinity. And I, as someone who is has always wanted to to explore that a little bit more, have had experiences with that where I felt like I couldn't because, or when I'm like in that situation, it felt weird and masculine. And just like mm-hmm. being a kid, there was always like a weirdness to like having to play the boy roles, or I don't know. There was just a lot of, I was always very conscientious about not presenting as too masculine because that would be somehow wrong. Yeah, I think that it's definitely true for people who are, you know, uh, WLW and things like that. But I, I think that you can even see it in the sense that, like, as women, we're conditioned to not make the first move, right, even in heterosexual uh, encounters, um like you wait you wait for the man to approach you and things like that and like sometimes still like you're ostracized for being too bold or too forward because it's a masculine thing you know in romantic encounters yeah i definitely think that's true can you go back and define lwaw is that what you said uh wlw it's just woman love woman who love woman essentially Uh, okay is that so that you're so that you're not necessarily talking exclusively about like one subsect of of the lgbtqia community okay all right interesting so i just thought it was interesting that his immediate attack on eleanor is that she is being too masculine yeah or she and wants like, to be masculine and like there's this weird very weird almost respect to it because he's like, I wanted to see you face to face. That's what gentlemen do. We face our enemies, our rivals. A gentleman never slinks around like a coward um, uh, behind another man's back. So like Eleanor automatically like comes back to that essentially being like, oh, so that's what you think I am? And then that's when he says, I think you're a freakish ghoul who wishes she were a man. But like there's something to his initial statement where it's like there is a weird sort of rivalry happening, you know? <laughs> He does Do you think-, think of her to a certain way as a gentleman. And it's like, that's just so not what's happening here, you know? Well, do you think that's a misogyny thing going on? Because he can't respect the idea of somebody being feminine, somebody feminine being his rival. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for sure. That's really interesting. This gets me sort of on to another topic I've talked with people about recently. Um, the whole, like, idea that women aren't as much of a threat to men 
like if you're if your partner if you're in a uh kind of monogamous relationship and you're a heterosis couple or i guess you don't even need to be cis but just you're a hetero couple in a monogamous relationship there is this thing where men are like okay with women exploring um with other women because they don't consider it cheating necessarily but they're not okay with women exploring with other men because that threatens their masculinity and that directly makes them jealous mm-hmm. and i've talked with some people who are women who love women and they've talked about feeling feeling a lot of harm with that simply because it makes them themselves feel less legitimate and less mm-hmm. like people so that's just something i've been thinking a lot about yeah and i think that that's like subtext here as well okay okay yeah do you have anything else you want to say about mr newland and his his the idea that eleanor is somehow more butch or or masculine or trying to be a man in his view i think that the other important like i think that we've kind of well covered it ultimately while the scene is terrible it does only last for two pages i think that more another important thing that we get here is also like this we see firsthand for the first time in the book how controlling and bad and like clearly abusive Newland is, you know, to like Lucy. Yeah. And I think that that's further exacerbated because when Eleanor, you know, comes home from this encounter, she finds that a ton of her teas have been poisoned with arsenic and Purdue helps her sort out what's safe and what's not. But like Eleanor, as far as we know in this book, thinks it's Newland who did it, you know? So like, we also see Newland here as a man who is capable of great violence, you know? Yes. And I think we already kind of knew that um, as readers when we saw Eleanor confronting or speaking with Lucy. Yeah. I just think that an important difference here is because we were talking about at the time the fact that because we saw that whole encounter from Eleanor's point of view who is already at a heightened worry for Lucy, like the scene becomes a little bit skewed. But Mm -hmm. this is the first time as a reader, even if it is still from Eleanor's point of view, that we are seeing new, like we are seeing what he is capable of first time, like person to person, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So she's getting to see that he's a real threat. Which I, which I, I think makes it, clearer for the reader also like you're 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 faced with him for the first time you're you're able to see more of what's happening you know along with the butch stereotype one thing i felt thought was really interesting and um i'm going to say a word that may be triggering to some people but i'm going to say it anyway because yeah, it's in the text. i'm just going to it's, it, yeah, it's, in, it's in the text it's in the text, and also I have a lot of feelings about this word, and I think that we need to reclaim it, and not everyone needs to feel that way. But, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, he says the word, uh, he, he calls her a cunt after he's leaving, after she's, or he tells her to leave the house on page 383. And I think that's really interesting, especially because, as we were just talking about, he does treat her as though she's a man before, and now he's, like, directly using the dirtiest slur that he can think of. That so, like, only applies really to women. Yeah. To oh, yeah, to emphasize that she's, like less than him in his mind. I think. Yeah. Okay. So that's really interesting. So he's treating her with respect and as though she is a gentleman, and then he's throwing out this slur that is only used to describe femininity and only used, by the way, because it has to do with the vagina. And that's ridiculous because vaginas are fucking great. I think that (laughs) an important part about this scene is that we start at that place on 382 where he's like, I want to see you face to face. But every time Mm -hmm. he talks, the respect that he initially gives her respect, obviously, in heavy quote, calling her almost an equal goes down and down and down and down and down until we get Uh to that line. Yeah. Okay. So is she becoming... Is she not fitting what he thought she should be? I think it's possible that her interpretation is correct and that he's just toying with her the entire time, you know? But why is he talking about gentlemen then in the beginning? Like, what is that? What does that serve in terms of toying with her? Because she she thinks they're on more equal footing to begin with, you know? Initially, her question is, is that what you think I am, a coward and a rival? Which, like, if if that's, like, her initial thought process in the situation, then, like, when he pulls out a gun and then tries to poison her with arsenic, right, 
were were on two very different levels. So like he's toying with oh, okay. her in a lot of ways and like her sense of safety, I think. Interesting. Oh, that's fucked up. And then we get Beatrice's kidnapping. What do you think about the kidnapping? I mean, I think it's hard to talk about a little bit in this standpoint in this part because all we know in this part is from Beatrice's point of view. She goes out to find Adelaide, feels like she's being followed, a mouth covers her, she goes black. That's the last we see of her. But the rest of the, I think the more interesting thing here is the response to her being kidnapped, because everyone initially assumes that she's run away from being the Egyptian Sybil, you know? Mm, So, like, to a certain extent, they're not super worried about her at first. Like, Adelaide is pissed. Eleanor becomes more concerned, and it's not until they go back to the tea shop, really, and, like, are able to debrief together that they realize that something really bad has happened. And I think that something interesting is the way that Adelaide's concern and guilt grows of being, why was I so hard on her? Like, she's not strong enough for this. She almost gets a feeling of, like, if she's missing, this should have happened to me. Like, I'm the stronger one. I know how to handle this. And it's Eleanor who comes back and is like, no, Beatrice is also strong. We will find her. Things will be okay. Aww. Yeah, that's very sweet. It is sweet how they respond to it. And how Adelaide does, like, let her vulnerability start to show. Yeah. But Eleanor is the one, I think, it's interesting, too, because it's kind of a flip where Eleanor is kind of the one who is coddling Beatrice for the majority of this book. And then Adelaide is like, oh, no, she's not strong for the, strong enough for this. And Eleanor is like, no, she doesn't need to be coddled. I think that's something which is interesting considering the fact that, you know, we know what is actually happening to her. And like, yeah, she does kind of need to be coddled, right? Like, she's in a terrible <laughs> cell with ghosts. Yeah, she needs help. Yes. But... I think it's interesting because as we've talked about through all of our podcasts, like Adelaide and Beatrice's friendship comes to form through mostly business venture. And this is the Mm -hmm. time where we really see that like Adelaide has actual feelings for like real deep friendship feelings for Beatrice, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Because we really don't get to see that enough. So that this is where her vulnerability is showing. Yeah. Which is what Eleanor said needed to happen Mm -hmm. to Adelaide. And I guess that's what they need in order to become, like, a true friend. Because you can be friends with somebody and go hang out with them, but you're not true friends, I think, until you've been vulnerable with somebody and you've shared something with them. Or about them, in this case, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else we want to talk about? Twitch, have I mentioned this every podcast, but I'm always, I, I'm always confused about why Twitch is in love with Beatrice. That bothers me so much. I mean, I get that he's sad that she's left, but gosh... Gosh, I think every section we do, there's some sort of quote about Twitch being in love with Beatrice. There isn't in this one. He's he's into his pillow sobbing. But it's and he's like, we gave her the... <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. And I get what you mean. But I do think here, like, because she's the chosen one, I think it's fair also to be upset about the fact that things have gone awry in this circumstance, you know? That's true. I just, I don't know. Bright is, like, comforting him. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know. I just see no I just see no point to having the fairy be in love with Beatrice. Unless that comes back to us in book two. There's just no point. There's just no point. I hope that comes to us in book two. In the case, these are the things I need from you. Yeah. Okay. In this section, we also get to see Beatrice in her cell. What do you think about that? I guess I don't see a ton just because, you know, un- unfortunately at this point in the book, right, like this is the third time we've been with a girl who's been in the cell it's all the same circumstances right you know i think an interesting thing is that she assumes that it's mr pasham who has got her instead of the reverend um Mm -hmm. so like she doesn't initially pick that up from him the second thing is that she still thinks she can cry for help which i mean given the fact that this is a book like as a reader we think is silly but i'm sure that everyone cries for help if they've been kidnapped i think the most interesting thing that happens here is the last line right the footsteps faded but she was not alone like it ends with a glimmer of hope but like maybe that's also just me reading into it because like i can't unknow the ending right so i i can't say anything more about that because maybe she she's not alone for a bad reason (laughs) but that's definitely highlighted here she is not alone so yeah it does seem hopeful and It is weird seeing our hero in this destitute place where we've seen so many other women fall. Mm -hmm. It makes you feel real concerned for her because, like, bad things, we know that bad things have happened to women in this cell. Yeah. 
in a very like lifetime movie sort of way or like you on netflix which um you shouldn't watch unless you want to be scared I guess. or read the I book know. oh there's a book yeah it's by caroline kepneys or kepnes oh i'm totally mm-hmm. going to do that it's a really good trash i i really like that it's like it okay I, I digress. Yeah, I don't know. I like that. Um, I like that the guy that plays it is also Dan Humphrey in Fast and Girl. What are you reading right now? I am reading Shanghai Girls by Lisa C. Ooh, very nice. Very nice. What are you um, reading? I wrapped up finally her body and other parties, and I love it. I love it so much. Let's see. Right now, I am audiobooking Little Woman. I'm finishing up Waking the Witch. And then I also just started a book for my feminist book club about porn. And it's written from an Indian woman's perspective. And right now, we're going through the history of porn. And then I think that we're going to talk more about porn and how it forms our ideas of sexuality. Very cool. (laughs) Very interesting. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. I forget the name, but um, when I post the socials, I will definitely record that in here. Or maybe I'll just insert it. Cyber Sexy by Richa Call Pate. There we go. Do you have any, <laughs> do you have any homework for yourself for next week? Oh, okay. Homework for myself. Do you have any homework? Start with you while, while I, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think my homework is going to be to look up um, org- an organization that I can donate to that helps women who have been kidnapped, like Beatrice and everyone else in this story. Oh, that's a really good idea. You could um, look up sex trafficking, probably. Yeah, there's like, a couple tra- really great charities in Seattle that, that help with that. I'm going to work more on my solidarity activism. That's something I've been looking, I've been looking for a while since our lovely president was elected <laughs> about ways in which I can help in a meaningful way. And um, I was talking to a group of people who gave me some good organizations to to go for. And I think, yeah, I'm just going to look for some sort of organization that I can be a part of that's doing some sort of activism that feels meaningful to me that nice. won't impact my career as a journalist. <laughs> yeah, fair. Life is hard. So that's good. Maybe I'll do like um, some sort of volunteerism at a women's shelter or something because that's something I'm interested in. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Shall we let the readers know what our next part is? Yes. Let me figure out what our next part is. <laughs> so it's 407 to, I think we're going to do two of these little sections this time 407 to 497. And this is the, it's October 10th, 1880, Waxing Moon to october 12th 1880 waxing moon very nice very nice okay well i guess that's it for today bye everyone see you next week bye you can follow us at rebel girls book club on instagram at rebel girls book club on facebook at rebel girls book one on twitter and you can email us at rebel girls book club at gmail.com our theme song is called pretty boys make me feel ugly and it's by the days. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.